millions and millions of dollars have vanished into Haiti. So many well-intentioned people have given to funds that promise disaster relief to struggling Haitians, yet Haiti has barely seen any of that money. In many cases, they're worse off for the interference. Why? Why should you not give your money to the Red Cross? Hello everyone, and welcome back to A New Corporate Casket. Today, I wanted to talk to you about Haiti and the failed promise of aid from the United States. Now, because this is such a multifaceted and complex issue, I can't go over every single aspect involved. This episode is simply meant to provide a broad overview of the issues surrounding nonprofits in Haiti. As an important note here, there will be mentions of violence, death, and other sensitive topics throughout the episode. I'm not really going to go into any explicit or graphic detail for any length of time, but I do wanna state that up front. Now, let's get into this. First, in order to get a better picture of the situation, let's discuss when the US really started to become involved with Haiti in more recent years and how things spiraled from there. Haiti, like any country, has a massively long and complex history. So we're going to jump back a few decades, but not too far. Let's just go back to the 1980s. The Duvalier era had just ended in 1986. Human rights groups say that between 40 to 60,000 political opponents were killed during this era, between the mid 50s to the late 80s. There was no public reckoning, no trials, no jury judgments, no truth, and no reconciliation. People wanted change. And so in 1987, the Haitian constitution was written. To massively simplify what was going on here, Haiti was striving to be a democracy. However, to say that they faced opposition and conflict would be a gross understatement. As one source writes, November 29th, 1987, an election was called to fulfill promises made in their post-Duvalier constitution. Citizens who lined up to vote were mowed down by fusillades of terrorist bullets. Military leaders who had either orchestrated or condoned the murders moved in to cancel the election and retain control of the government. And the victor was removed the moment he dared to exert independence as president too. Former president Jimmy Carter wrote this article in 1990, explaining that the Haitian elections needed help. In the winter of 1990, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected president in the nation's first ever democratic presidential election. But even then things didn't go according to plan. A military coup led by Raul Cerdas took over in 1991, leading to a reign of terror. Civilians and Aristide supporters were raped and killed. And then in 1994, paramilitaries in a group led by Louis Jodel Chamblain murdered at least 15 Aristide supporters. Many of the victims were, quote, tortured and made to lay in open sewers before being shot, end quote. It wasn't until this tragic event that Bill Clinton decided to interfere and he spoke of restoring democratic government in Haiti. The dictators rejected all of our efforts and their reign of terror, a campaign of murder, rape, and mutilation gets worse with every passing day, he said. Now we must act. The thing is the US had its own lengthy history in Haiti. Again, that would take an incredibly long time to cover. However, needless to say that the US has consistently and throughout history treated Haitians incredibly poorly. The US occupation in the early 1900s, starting in 1915 to be exact, crippled Haiti, reviving old labor laws and conscripting Haitians for public works projects. According to the AAIHS, the African-American Intellectual History Society, President Woodrow Wilson, Secretary of State, described the Haitians as having an inherent tendency to revert to savagery. And that's a quote, by the way. This derogatory language is especially hypocritical because the US literally introduced Jim Crow laws to Haiti. Many Haitians were subjected to virtual slavery working on road buildings and railroads or white run plantations that benefited US companies. 
Even when, as Jimmy Carter's article puts it, Haiti's election needed help, it's questionable at the very least if the US was really equipped to give it that help, considering the history of how they've treated Haitians previously. Still, President Bill Clinton decided it was time to intervene again in 1994 with Operation Uphold Democracy. According to Time Magazine, Clinton told the public during his address that he had sent former President Carter, General Colin Powell, and Senator Sam Nunn to Haiti that morning, September 17, 1994, in a last-ditch effort attempt to provide a peaceful orderly transfer of power. But the junta's leaders didn't believe the US would actually invade, says Robert Fatten, a Haitian-born historian who is now a professor in political science at the University of Virginia. One reason for that belief, he says, was that at least one key member of the junta was on the CIA payroll in order to feed the CIA intelligence of the situation in Haiti. Emmanuel Constant was the leader of one of the death squads that went after Aristide's supporters in Haiti during the military coup. Washington officials confirmed that he was on the American intelligence payroll after the coup ousted President Aristide, time reported in 1994. The junta's leaders at first refused the diplomatic negotiation efforts, but when nearly 25,000 US military personnel arrived on September 19th, the junta backed down. President Aristide was restored to power, and according to many at that time, it was a success. However, with this help came the conditions. Aristide signed an agreement with the IMF, or International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, opening up Haiti's market to foreign trade. This agreement marks the moment when Haiti became dependent on international financial support and when they had to import most of their food as a result. Some may argue that intentions may have always been good. The Clinton Foundation has given hundreds of millions of dollars to Haiti and Bill Clinton was the special envoy to Haiti in 2009, for example. Unfortunately, as we've often seen before, intentions can be difficult to determine. In 2004, the Marines were deployed to Haiti to keep order after Aristide was forced out of office. The same year, Hurricane Janine killed thousands when it hit Haiti, one in a series of deadly storms. 3,000 people were killed, hundreds were reported missing, and a quarter million people were left homeless. Once again, though, the Clintons stepped forward to help. By 2010, the Clinton Foundation was one of the country's largest benefactors, and they had 34 projects there and were devoted to creating jobs. Yet it was in January, 2010, when the US and Clinton's approach to Haiti was tested. A 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit Haiti, killing more than 200,000 people. Almost a fifth of the country's entire population, 1.6 million out of 10 million were displaced. And other sources say that it's estimated 316,000 died. Billions of dollars were pledged to help Haiti with some $13 billion by international donors. And as US Secretary of State, Hillary helped to oversee $4.4 billion that Congress had earmarked for recovery efforts. According to Politico, this is where the secret emails we've heard so much about came into play and why back in the 2016 election, Clinton and Haiti were such a hot topic. While the Clinton Foundation and other non-governmental organizations were running to help, Chelsea Clinton, Bill and Hillary's daughter, apparently had a widely different view on what was happening in the quake zone. The incompetence is mind numbing, she told her parents. The UN people I encountered were frequently out of touch. Anachronistic in their thinking at best and arrogant and incompetent at worst. There is no accountability in the UN system or international humanitarian system. The weak Haitian government, which had lost buildings and staff in the disaster, had something of a plan, she noted. Yet, because it had failed to articulate its wishes quickly enough, foreigners rushed forward with a proliferation of ad hoc efforts by the UN and INGOs, international non-governmental organizations, to help some of which have helped, some of which have hurt, and some of which have not happened at all. 
The former first daughter recognized something that scores of other foreigners had missed. The Haitians were not just sitting around waiting for others to do the work. Haitians in the settlements are very much organizing themselves. Fairly nuanced settlement government structures have already been developed, she wrote, giving the example of a camp home to 40,000 displaced quake survivors who had established a governing committee. And a series of subcommittees overseeing security, sanitation, women's needs, and other issues. They want to help themselves and they wanted reliability and accountability from their partners, Chelsea Clinton wrote. Sorry, if you heard Casper, he had a tornado shakes moment in the in the background there. Didn't you coos? Right in the middle of mommy quoting something important. This is a very serious topic. They wanted to help themselves and they wanted reliability and accountability from their partners, Chelsea Clinton wrote, but that help was not coming. The aid groups had ignored requests for t-shirts, flashlights, and pay for the security committee. And the US military had apparently passed on the committee's backup plan that they provide security themselves. The settlement's governing bodies, as they shared with me, are beginning to experience UNINGO fatigue given how often they articulate their needs, willingness to work, and how little is coming their way. After the earthquake happened, the Haitians did not sit around expecting a handout. Disaster survivors are best positioned to take care of their own recovery. Yet, as is the case here, they're often pushed aside by outside authorities who wrongly think they know better. I'm not saying by any means that this is an excuse not to donate or not to offer aid, but there's a massive difference between stepping into a country in a crisis and saying, you need this instead of how can I help? Every source I can find from PTSD to health crisis care to how psychologists train for disaster relief, it's about helping people help themselves and take an active role in whatever recovery they are going through. This isn't what happened in Haiti. And in part because of this, Haiti has become even further known as the Republic of NGOs. And let's get into that in a bit and see what these non-governmental organizations are up to, how they claim to help and where that money is going. And before we jump into that, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. It's the holiday season, the celebrations with family and friends, the shopping, the decorations, everyone is going through it all right now. And it's a busy time, but thankfully I never have to worry about whether my freezer is stocked because Daily Harvest has my back with delicious, easy to make food that's actually good for me. Now, you guys know I am a smoothie addict. That's easy, that's obvious. We know that, we love that. But they also have oats and these oats are really great because I like doing overnight oats, right? Where you put a little milk in, put your ingredients in, let it sit overnight and then it's like delightful in the morning. Well, they have that too. And I am super excited to get my hands on some of their oats. They also have some soups and I am super excited. There's like this, um, God, I think it's like a sweet potato and wasabi soup. I am very curious and very hungry thinking about it. So keep things simple during the holidays with Daily Harvest. Make sure you go to dailyharvest.com slash casket to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash casket for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash casket. This episode is also sponsored by Stitch Fix, the people who keep my addiction for sweaters on high alert at all times. When you go shopping, isn't it one of the greatest feelings in the world to have a piece, it's just right there in front of you, it's gonna fit you, it's gonna look great on you, it's your style, it's in your budget, it's everything you want. And it was procured right for you. Well, you don't have to worry about that not being a reality because Stitch Fix Freestyle is here to help. 
Stitch Fix Freestyle is your trusted style destination where you can shop items curated to your styles, likes, and lifestyle. It's easy, you take a bunch of quizzes and then they help tailor it down. And like every single week they update their quizzes. So you literally just look at pictures of clothes and you just go yes or no. And it helps them understand what you like and what you don't like. They've got styles for every occasion, whether it's work, lounging at home, or hitting the town. Plus they've got free shipping, returns, and exchanges, and you don't need a subscription. So get started today by filling out your style quiz at stitchfix.com casket. That's stitchfix.com casket to try Stitch Fix Freestyle. Try and say that 10 times fast. stitchfix.com casket. Get your sweater addiction started today. Not an official tagline, but it definitely is for me. All right, so let's get back to talking about NGOs. Haiti has become known as a Republic of NGOs and NGOs have supplemented their weak national institutions to the point of semi-privatization. Even before the infamous 2010 quake, NGOs were found to provide 70% of healthcare and private, mostly NGO run schools accounted for 85% of education. People are reluctant to give to Haiti directly given their volatile government and NGOs seen as stable and accountable ways to keep the country afloat. People want to help and give, but when they do, they want it to be to an organization that can be held accountable to international donors. The situation has become similar to what we saw in the mission trips episode. The dominance of international NGOs has created a parallel state more powerful than the government itself. The government isn't inclined to act or provide public services when NGOs are doing the job for them. Plus, how could they without the employees? As there's anywhere from 343 to 20,000 NGOs active in Haiti, which is an insanely wide range. And I know, I know. Many workers are in the private sector instead of public ones. All this relief money goes straight to NGOs, not the Haitian government. So without the funding to improve, this cycle will continue to feed itself. The government isn't helping during a time of crisis and people don't want to fund it because of its instability. But then those that do help are taking over and essentially making the Haitian people reliant on them instead. While there's many organizations we could talk about, there's one that stands out as an example of how abysmally some of these NGOs are failing the Haitian people, the Red Cross. In late 2011, they launched a massive multi-million dollar project to transform Haiti and build hundreds of permanent homes. They raised over $32 million from just a campaign where you could donate $10 by texting the word Haiti. The total amount received from their fundraising was almost half a billion dollars. The Red Cross publicly celebrated and claimed that they provided homes to 13,000 people when in actuality, the number of permanent homes they built was six. And I do mean six, not 6,000. Six as in less than the number 10. Six as in a number that many toddlers can count to. Now, I did try to unearth exactly what happened to these people that they supposedly housed. And from the sounds of it, it seemed like it was tents, transitional shelters, modest improvements to homes, but not building new homes. I really can only speculate here as to where all of the money went, but many believe that this money did go to their own employees. At the very least, there's no sign that Haiti received that much money. Lee Maloney, who ran the Red Cross's shelter program in Haiti starting in 2010, says that the Red Cross never even had a real plan to begin with. ProPublica reads, After the earthquake, Red Cross CEO Gail McGovern unveiled ambitious plans to develop brand new communities. None has ever been built. Aid organizations from around the world have struggled after the earthquake in Haiti, the Western Hemisphere's poorest country. But ProPublica and NPR's investigation shows that many of the Red Cross's failings in Haiti are of its own making. 
They're also part of a larger pattern in which the organization has botched delivery of aid after disasters such as Superstorm Sandy. Despite its difficulties, the Red Cross remains the charity of choice for ordinary Americans and corporations alike after natural disasters. One of the former directors even made disparaging remarks about Haitian employees themselves, calling himself the only hardworking one among them. This article also points to the Red Cross essentially using Haiti as a spectacular fundraising opportunity as celebrities, the NFL, and Michelle Obama all encourage people to donate to the Red Cross during these times. After all, the Red Cross recently faced scandals a few years prior for how poorly they handled Katrina. Might as well rebuild and erase their more than $100 million deficit, right? Well, the fact is that the people in Haiti do not have good things to say about the Red Cross. The head of a community group that the Red Cross set up as a local sounding board in Haiti said that they are only working for themselves. That's what the community is saying, and it speaks volumes. Now, obviously I'm not saying that every NGO is like this, simply that the money that's been donated to help Haitians has a history of just simply vanishing, being used elsewhere, or being so poorly managed that it's essentially worthless. The $4.4 billion sent to Haiti by US aid overseen by Clinton is actually another example of this. According to The Guardian, just before the earthquake hit, Paul Collier had published a report for the UN that laid out a vision for Haiti. He wanted to reduce taxes on business to attract foreign investment, make it cheaper to buy and sell goods and create jobs. One aspect of Paul's plan was building a port in Haiti. Obviously, this port should have been placed near the capital, right? Right near where hundreds of thousands of displaced people would be able to work, right? No. Instead, USAID built the port on the country's northern coast, 650 miles southeast of Miami, Florida. Rather than build a port near these displaced workers with the billions of dollars meant to help Haitians, the US government said, yeah, but we would like it more if your port was closer to Miami since that's where it's going. Not to mention members of Haiti's Northern elite were allegedly lobbying for Bill Clinton to invest in this region. Now, aside from the port, Bill Clinton and other building firms across the world talked about permanent housing in Haiti that could even help those that were displaced. So. What was the first building that they decided to build post-earthquake? Well, it was a Marriott hotel. It was financed, of course, by a corporation whose chairman was a friend of the Clintons and brokered by the Clinton Foundation itself. And let that sink in for a moment. The largest piece of real estate post-earthquake reconstruction wasn't even built for Haitians. But this isn't even the largest project that took place in Haiti. A $300 million, 600 acre park called Caracol was also built on the Northern coast. To make the park more attractive, the US agreed to finance a power plant and port so that Caracol could ship in materials like cotton and ship out t-shirts and jeans for us to buy for cheap. One source describes these events as plain and simple land grabbing and rights. On January 12, 2010, a huge earthquake hit Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. Up to 316,000 people lost their lives and 1.5 million were left homeless. In the aftermath, international donors pledged $9 billion to help Haiti build back better. Yet a year later, more than 1,000 people lost their land and livelihoods when construction of the US-backed Caracol Industrial Park began. In January, 2011, representatives from the government of Haiti arrived near the village of Caracol with trucks and bulldozers. Farmers were given little time to react or organize before the crops they cultivated were replaced with miles of concrete. Not to mention, the park was built on land that quite frankly, should have been used for farming. It was outside the earthquake disaster zone and my source calls it prime agricultural land in Northern Haiti. Food insecurity and droughts are rising issues in Haiti. So this decision to use this viable land was incredibly controversial. 
I feel horrible for calling this a brief aside because it genuinely is a massive problem, but let me sort of pause for a moment and just explain how outside sources also contributed to food insecurity inside Haiti. You see, in the 1970s, the US pressured Haiti to reduce tariffs on imported crops, then ship surplus American crops into Haiti's ports under the guise of food aid. Haitian farmers couldn't compete with the artificially cheap rice, which was the point. The US effectively created another market for American farmers while pushing Haiti's labor force into factories. Bill Clinton also furthered this program when he was president, resulting in thousands of farmers losing land with industrialization never able to replace what they'd lost. When the earthquake struck, it's been said that it was a nation that once grew enough rice to feed itself was now importing 80% of it from abroad. Reports from 2010 from NBC confirm this. I can't make any money off my rice with all the foreign rice there is now, said Renan Reynold, a 37-year-old farmer who makes an average of about $600 a year. If I can't make any money, I can't feed my family. But little is being done to change endemic problems, according to Jean-Andre Victor, a Haitian agronomist. He is among analysts who believe Haiti needs radical agricultural reforms, not consistent food aid. Now that you know just a bit more context of the farming problems in Haiti, let's get back to the Caracol Industrial Park. One 2015 action aid report states that disaster relief funding was used to build the park, more than a quarter of US aid's funding in total. Marie, a smallholder farmer and mother of two, was forced to leave her land when construction of the Caracol Industrial Park started. Hers was one of 366 families that lost their land when the industrial park was given the go ahead. I had farmed my land for 22 years, but was made to leave without any compensation, she says. Afterwards, the government sent investigators asking for all kinds of information from us, but never told us how much compensation they were going to give us. There were no negotiations. We were told to accept the compensation that they were going to give us. We thought the park was going to benefit us. First, they promised us land, then housing. Then all we got was a small amount of compensation. And I highly, highly recommend that you check out this ActionAid report if you want, so that you can see some faces and hear some personal accounts of what's been done in Haiti. After all, I know that when I'm discussing these topics, it can all start to blend together and sound like just numbers instead of people. So I really think including these personal stories is important in order to emphasize a bit better. One more reads. Ellie is a farmer from one of the 366 families that lost their land in January, 2011 to the construction of the Caracol Industrial Park. He had a plot of 4.5 hectares and provided jobs to members of the local community. Here he is holding a ledger, there's a photo above the description, containing the names of the people who worked for him each day. I farmed my land for 21 years and then forced to leave for the construction of this park, he said. I grew black beans, cavassa, corn, peanuts, and bananas on my land and raised all of my children because of that land. I would hire 100 seasonal workers during our planting seasons. I paid them 150 gourds a day and two meals. If we had the support we needed to farm our land, we would be doing well. Now that I've lost my land, I don't have a penny. But it's fine because these factory jobs that the US provided are fantastic, right? Well, obviously not. This factory was supposed to benefit the Haitian people, but it's underpaying workers, exacerbating pre-existing economic and social inequalities and harming local communities and environmentalists because of its high water requirements and polluting waste. Caracol Bay is a fragile marine ecosystem home to critically endangered species. Both Haitian citizens and environmentalists alike have found issues with Caracol Bay. However, the US government has called Haiti the Taiwan of the Caribbean in the past, seeing the country as a business opportunity and nothing more. The seized land wasn't just fertile and potentially better suited for farming, but home to Haitian people that are still waiting for compensation for their property. This article was written in 2020, so it's not as if they've been waiting a few months. 
It's been years and almost a decade since the industrial park opened. In the meantime, without this compensation, many Haitians are struggling to get by and pay for their children's education. And again, we're back to that cycle that feeds itself. You can't get an education. How can you get a job if you can't get a job? How do you pay for your child's education? Do you see what I'm getting at? Not only is the US exacerbating from this cycle, but directly profiting from it by taking this land for Caracol. Conflicting information spread about Caracol as well. The IDB, Inter-American Development Bank, claimed that 366 people who used to farm the state-owned land had received about $3,500 per household in compensation, five times the Haitian per capita income. But then why do some Haitians claim they've received nothing? One 2012 New York Times article reads, The farmers did not understand why the authorities wanted to replace productive agricultural land with factories in a rural country that had trouble feeding itself. But promised compensation, they did not protest a strange twist of fate that left them displaced by an earthquake that had not affected them. We watched voiceless Jean-Louis St. Thomas, an elderly farmer said, the government paid us to shut us up. These factory jobs are also known to abuse Haitian workers as well. The South Korean clothing manufacturer, Say A Trading, is the anchor tenant of Caracol. As of 2016, ABC reported that Haitian CA workers have been accusing managers of bullying and sexual harassment, some claiming that they provide sexual favors to supervisors in order to obtain jobs. Though the factory may not technically be a sweatshop because it does pay minimum wage, has benefits, and the condition of the workplace is fair, it is absolutely uh, abusive and it's built into that system. In addition, this factory isn't nearly as beneficial as the Clintons said it would be. Even years later after being built, Caracol employs 5,479 people full-time, at least as of 2015. But that's a far cry from the 60,000 jobs that were promised. Plus, if you subtract the 366 families that were employed as well, you're left with the question, was this to help the Haitians or was this to help the US? Yet to add insult to injury after the quake, the United Nations brought something else to Haiti from the aid, cholera. Before 2010, cholera was unknown in Haiti for a century or more. Then it spread along Haiti's largest river. And then it spread throughout the nation. According to NPR, the source is clear to public health experts. Cholera was brought to Haiti by a Nepalese soldiers quartered in the United Nations peacekeeping camp that spilled its waste into a tributary. As of 2015, cholera has infected more than 720,000 Haitians and killed almost 9,000. More recent articles put those numbers around 10,000. Now, 10 years later, the Bureau de Avocats International in Haiti, its US-based partner, the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, and the International Human Rights Clinic at Harvard Law School, where Beatrice Lindstrom is now a clinical instructor, are leading efforts to achieve justice for victims of the epidemic. Lindstrom worked with the Haitian outbreak when it started happening. And according to her, it doesn't seem like any event that would require lawyers. It was a public health emergency. But it became really obvious that the UN peacekeepers were responsible for introducing the disease and involving lawyers. And it was ultimately the only route. The UN accepted responsibility six years after receiving these claims. Lindstrom told the Harvard Gazette that the UN changed medical screening and cholera vaccination protocol for peacekeepers, but that implementation has been incredibly spotty. Throughout the world, UN bases continue disposing of untreated waste into the local environment, creating a high risk of negative health impacts. It's high time the UN takes responsibility they promised they would, just as it's long past overdue that the industrial park would create jobs it promised and the Red Cross build a seventh house already. Thankfully, according to the CDC, cholera transmission has declined rapidly, back into borderline non-existence these days. Even so, this is something that should have never happened to begin with. 
Today, Haiti is far from breaking out of chronic poverty. Poor infrastructure, a history of foreign interference, political repression, and instability are all massive parts of the problem. Whether or not the U.S. has had good intentions is frankly up for debate at this point, but I'd say more often than not, they've been self-serving. Also, please note that I'm not talking about every NGO again or everyone that went down there ever and volunteered or every Red Cross member or anything like that. I'm talking about the government and larger organizations as a whole and the shady behavior we've discussed. But as I promised earlier, I want to touch on the U.S.'s recent interference with Haiti's government. It starts with Michael Joseph Martelli, a pop singer and keyboardist known as Sweet Mickey. One year after the earthquake in May, 2011, he was sworn in as president of Haiti. He did criticize the desperately slow reconstruction of Haiti at the time, yet many believe that the U.S. simply put their stamp of approval on this election, no matter how flawed. One source claims that in this 2010 election, the number of uncounted tally sheets was 12%. Then in 2015, only 18% of votes went to the polls and 23% of those votes were never counted due to fraud and violence on election day. Yet Pamela Ann White, the US ambassador to Haiti called the first round of legislative elections acceptable. The Hill wrote, Illegitimate elections in 2010 contaminated by a corrupt electoral council, illegal exclusion of political parties, ballot stuffing, and an arbitrary revision of the results set Haiti on its way to its current political crisis. A month before the 2010 elections, 45 members of the US Congress warned Secretary of State Hillary Clinton that supporting flawed elections will come back to haunt the international community by generating unrest and threatening the implementation of earthquake reconstruction projects. Ricardo Citanfis, a respected Brazilian professor of international relations, had been working as a special representative in the OAS in Haiti since 2008. After observing the 2010 electoral process, he criticized international meddling in Haiti. He was abruptly ousted on Christmas day, 2010. Not only is the US interfering in Haitian struggling democracy, but there really isn't any help to be had for those that suffered from the 2010 earthquake. USAID hasn't been honest, or at least not transparent about where their funds have gone, leaving those in Haiti to question why the money didn't go to schools or homes and instead just some industrial park. As for what's been happening in more recent years, Trump referred to Haiti as a shithole back in 2018. And he said that publicly, of course. As the Hartford Current responded, Haiti may be in a hole, but the US helped dig it. There can be absolutely no denying that. They also refer to Haiti as suffering from modern colonialism as the US through their intervention created Haiti's third world status. Colonialism isn't some long dead thing that doesn't exist anymore and can only be found in history books. It's just evolved. Most of what we discussed today has happened 2010 onward in our lifetimes. At least I'd sure like to hope that no one 10 or 11 is watching this. You should not be watching my channel. Personally, I've got no idea how to break a country out of a cycle like this. Uh, And I know I'm not a professional at this, this is not my gig, but I know it's not a simple answer. But I do think that being aware of Haiti and what's happened there is an important first step. As of writing this, Haitian activists have urged the US not to repeat the mistakes of the past. One named Emanuela Duyon and part of an anti-corruption civil society group states, The US government should recognize that past foreign aid-led attempts aimed to strengthen democracy in Haiti have not led to progress and have been counterproductive. It is time to follow the lead of Haitian civil society in determining when to support elections in Haiti and respect the current efforts to resolve the crisis as they want to. Thus far, President Joe Biden has maintained the US backing for Haitian presidents and experts close to the case say they do not expect anything to change much during his administration. Other sources have called Biden's approach depressingly clear and say that he only backed the president because he supported the US's business interests. 
Tragically, in recent months, the Haitian president has been assassinated and Haiti has been struck by yet another massive earthquake. This one, 7.2 in magnitude. Though it was in a less densely populated area than the other earthquakes, both of these events side by side have obviously left the country reeling. As of writing this, over 2,200 people have died and more than 12,000 were injured. I hope that those that are there helping will continue to help without making things worse. So with that being said, there's no good conclusion here. This is a work in progress and this is something that only time will tell if we're going to help or continue interfering. But that is where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all of the latest episodes. I appreciate you spending some time here with me today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.